We turn in the Word of God to John chapter 1, a passage which I'm sure is familiar to everyone. But this passage raises very important question. What is it that every single person needs? Or perhaps to be equally specific, what is the most important thing every preacher needs in addition to what every person needs? And the simple answer from this passage is this. Saving faith in Jesus Christ. A man called Fleming in 1693 wrote, The worst atheist is an unconverted preacher. Because this matter is so very important. It is essential that everyone hears often. The person recorded here is John. John had a testimony. And as you listen to John's testimony this evening, I trust that every single one present, from the oldest to the youngest, will keep asking along the way, is this also my testimony? Can I speak as John speaks? Do I possess what John possess? Or am I still a stranger to Jesus Christ? Verse 29, we read, John seeth Jesus. So our subject is, John's testimony. Three things arise from this passage. First of all, there is the greatness of Jesus, verses 15 to 18. In verse 15, we read that John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. That summarizes essentially. John and John's message. It summarizes John's life. John was wholly given to Jesus. If you were to ask John, what are you about? He would say, Jesus. Why do you live for Jesus? What's the explanation of your life? Jesus. You cannot separate John from Jesus. Inseparable. He is given to Jesus. So I say to the older ones amongst us, you know, anyone over 35, you're in the old age bracket. Is this true of you? Are you given to Jesus? And to all the younger ones, is the same true of you? 
Is it true of every communicant member of this congregation? True of every deacon of this congregation? True of every elder of this congregation? True of every preacher that stands in the pulpit in this congregation? That's how important it is. John's life was centered on Jesus. Why? Why was Jesus so important to John? That tells you why he should be important to you. John replies, the greatness of Jesus. Four things about this greatness that we have before us. First of all, the preeminence of Jesus. What does John say? Preferred before me. Preferred before me. In other words, John is saying there is nobody in this whole world throughout all of human history greater than Jesus. Equal to Jesus, higher than Jesus, no one. John could say, there is no other name under heaven given among men. The only name that's greater is Jesus. In fact, John tells you Jesus is so preeminent. He follows him. He's a follower of Jesus. And isn't that what people have been doing down through the centuries? Multitudes of people have become followers of Jesus because Jesus is preeminent. It's the mark of every true, genuine Christian. They have literally left all to follow Jesus. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress, there's the pilgrim setting out. And he meets all kinds of people. Some go with him part of the way. Remember he falls into that slough. And he just about barely gets out. And there was another character who said, well, if this is what the cost is, I'm not going with you. And he heads back home. And how often in life we meet people who seem to have an experience of sorts and they're going okay for a while. And then when the sun is up, when the trials come, they say, well, if this is the cost, I'm having no more of it. But then there is the true convert, the one like John, I'm following Jesus. Through fire, flood, danger, whatever. Because he is so excellent. He is so majestic. He is so glorious. He is preeminent. Jesus supernaturally draws near to a sinner. And say, sinner, follow me. 
and that sinner follows. That's the thrill. That's the joy. That's the wonder of Jesus. A glimpse, an understanding. It's enough for a sinner to follow him. And John says, I follow Jesus. I talk of Jesus because he is preeminent. The second thing, the pre-existence of Jesus. John says that he was before me. And he emphasizes that. Later on, we've read it again. He was before me. Chronologically, John is older, physically. But John understood something important about Jesus. That the Lord in his divine nature always existed. That cannot be said of any other person but Jesus Christ. That's why you have that long prologue of 14 verses. You have to understand those 14 verses in order to understand John, because John is pointing back to those 14 verses, trying to get you to understand John the writer, is saying you need to understand this so you can understand John the preacher. John understood. John the preacher understood the majesty and magnificence of that eternal being, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, we read, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Christ, who is called the Word, verse 1 and also here in verse 14, is said to be the creator of all things. Verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything made by Christ for Christ There's the magnificence of our Savior. So verse 14 is telling you that in relation to Jesus, you must understand that God exists in more than one person. At this point, John the writer tells you that God exists as Father and Son. And later on, we learn He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My friends, John understood this. That's why he said, before me. He is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's the most startling statement. John has understood why Jesus matters. Because he is God. 
And John the writer says, look, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And John the preacher says, I believe that. I understand that. This is why I follow him. Because of who he is. So not only the preeminence, not only pre-existence, but thirdly, the grace of Jesus. And grace dominates this little section, verses 15 through 17. Because grace is central to all of this. John is saying, Moses was indeed great. Moses is great. He does not detract from Moses in any way. But it is in Jesus that we see grace and truth embodied. Moses could say the truth is. Only Christ could say, I am the truth. Moses could talk of grace. He could explain what grace is. But only Christ could say, my grace is sufficient. My grace I give unto thee. You see that difference? John the preacher could, as it were, listen to Moses preach on grace and truth. But in Christ, grace and truth exist. Because Christ can say and did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He asked John, John, why do you make much of Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you talk of Jesus? And John's reply is, because grace is in Jesus. He's the giver of grace. Do you know this grace? Do you know Jesus Christ for yourself? You know that question that preachers often preach on. What think ye of Christ? Or what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Jesus? Children, young people, older people, pensioners, those who are within one breath from death and eternity, what think ye of Jesus? Do you know experimentally anything of the grace that is found in Jesus? The fourth part of this grand subject of the greatness of Jesus is the revelation of Jesus. In verse 18, what a staggering statement. 
No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So we need to pause here for a moment, because what is stated here is quite remarkable, very significant. It begins, no man hath seen God at any time. That's a dogmatic, absolute, blanket statement. No one in all of human history, not one person has seen God at any time. No one has gazed upon the very essence and being of God. No one can see God and live. So here is God, the invisible God, who is independently, self-sufficiently glorious, who doesn't need you, either any one of you or all of you put together. God doesn't need you. He never needed anyone. In all the ages in which God has ever existed, before he stopped to make the world, he was not in need of any person, and he did not make this world because he needed someone. No man has seen God at any time. But something astonishing happened in the history of this world. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared him. What is the incarnation about? It's this. The invisible God made visible by the Son, Jesus Christ. Lots of people say they believe in God. It's all garbage. There's only one way of believing in God. I believe in God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way to believe in God. No one can know God except in and through Jesus Christ. So the invisible God is made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the central doctrine of Christianity. It's the glory of Christianity. It is the boast of Christianity. It is the statement of the gospel. That in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Father is revealed. Jesus, as the only begotten, reveals the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we might say, well, John, what's so special about Jesus? 
He says, I see the Father in the face of the Son. I see the glory of God has come down, has revealed this scene in Jesus. That's why I love Jesus. That's why I follow Jesus. That's why I speak of Jesus. The only way to know the Father is through the Son. The glory of the Father. Everything you need to know about God, all you need to know about the Father is displayed, is revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you cannot see God. Without Christ, you cannot even know God. Without Christ, you cannot belong to God. Jesus, says the apostle in 2 Corinthians 4, is the brightness of the Father's glory. The express image of his person, says the apostle, in Hebrews 1, verse 3. In his divine person, he is the essential image of God the Father. In the incarnation, he is that representation, that representative image of the God the Father to us. And you ask me, says John, why I preach Jesus? Why I want to direct hearers to Jesus? Oh, let me tell you of his greatness, his grandeur, his magnificence. John says to you, this is that central rock upon which I stand and exist in this world. This fixed, immovable person of Jesus, who is preeminent above all, who exists before all, who is greater than all, who reveals God to me. What do you think of Jesus? Every preacher, every Christian, and John, the witness is the way to the Father is through the Son. There's no going to the Father by bypassing the Son. There's no having some experience of the divine by climbing up to a mountaintop and just staying there trying to get in touch with the divine. No. John comes and he says to you, I point you to Jesus. I tell you of Jesus. Here is who he is. 
Here is why you must have him, why you must follow him, trust him. You know, every single one of you is going to die. Every one of us, you're all going to die. Then what? The tragedy is this, my friends. To have heard of Jesus and yet never followed him. To die not being a follower of Jesus. That's an eternal tragedy. We cannot write on such headstone of such a person rest in peace because at that moment in time, they are not resting in peace. There will be no rest. So John, as it were, comes alongside this evening and he says to you, dear friends, I point you to Jesus. Whatever your age, regardless of your education and intellect, regardless of your status in life and society, you need Jesus. Consider the greatness of Jesus and follow him. But then secondly, the centrality of Jesus, verses 19 to 28. And it's fascinating, the record that we have of John. John was asked two questions by various people. Question one, who are you? Question two, what are you doing, John? Now, John is very clear in his answer. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. So who are you exactly? He says, I'm a voice. That's all I am. I am simply a voice. I am a preacher sent as a voice to declare Jesus. I'm but a signpost, that's all I am. The signpost is not the focus, it's where it points. A voice, he says in verse, uh, in verse 20 onwards, earlier, a witness. The writer says the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to the light. John says the focus, the interest is not myself. When John was asked, who are you? He didn't say, well, wonderful question. Uh, let me take five or ten minutes to tell you a bit about myself. As if somehow or other, that would make a difference. You ever notice how many commentaries that you get 
And the writer wants to tell you a bit about themselves. Oh, when I was 10, my grandmother broke her toe. They want to tell you all these human interest stories as if somehow or other those human interest stories matter to the text of Scripture. Totally irrelevant. John says, I'm not the focus. I'm simply a witness, a voice. So John is very clear. His role was to preach, to teach, to bear witness to Jesus, not to himself. He did not come to draw attention to himself. He existed to draw attention to Jesus. That's his view of himself. That's his self-perception. Because he could not say Jesus was great and he himself was significant. He could not bear witness to Jesus and to himself at the same time. If Jesus is so important, then all the attention must go to him. No, John wrote no books about himself. There's no autobiography. We have the Gospel of John. We don't have then a, a further book entitled The Autobiography of John. Because John did not exist to talk about himself. He existed to preach about Jesus Christ as centrality, his importance. John didn't even write any tracts or have any t-shirts with his name or a face of himself printed on it. He didn't write any cookery books about dieting or anything else. John did not give after-dinner speeches on his life before he met Jesus, after he met Jesus. John did not have any conference circuit where he'd be given some special topic to preach on. He already had a circuit. He had only one subject. He preached the Word. And in that preaching of the Word, Pointing people to Jesus. Even when they asked him what he was doing, he points them to Jesus. They asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ nor alas? Neither that prophet John answered them, saying, Well, it is about Jesus. I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. Oh, he's quite blunt, isn't he? He's a blunt kind of a preacher. He is saying, you're all a bunch of ignoramuses. You know nothing at all. You don't know Jesus. That is your problem. That's why you're asking me questions. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. Let me tell you about one so great, so magnificent, so important. Everything I do 
is geared and directed to that. And I don't matter. Not even worthy to unloose his shoes. I don't matter, he's saying. Stop asking me about me. Listen to what I'm telling you. I am telling you about one who matters. What's the message of John? Jesus is central. How do you know a real Christian? You live beside lots of people. How do you recognize the Christians in your neighborhood? Because Jesus matters to them. It's as simple as that. Let's not make it complicated. You know, the best of neighbors is probably a Pharisee. Do you know why the Pharisees, the best of neighbors, they're not going to burn their house down. They're going to be moral. They're going to be ethical in every way, polite, good, and all the rest of it. The perfect neighbor, the Pharisee doesn't know Jesus. How do you recognize a Christian? Because Jesus is more important than them. And they shape their life around Jesus. He is the center. Not their holidays, not their careers, not their bank balance, not their, the house that they want to acquire. Isn't it astonishing how worldly-minded so many professing Christians are? It's as if we must be part of the rat race, getting to the top. The top of our career, getting the best career, getting the best income, having the best house, the best car, the best clothes, the best of everything. Oh, and by the way, we'll turn up at church on a Sunday and then we'll whinge because the building was too cold or the building was too hot. Or I had to come through a storm to get there. And we have a long list of things that annoy us and upset us. You talk to a football supporter, they travel all over creation. No matter what the weather is like, they're going to be sitting there on the stand. They don't even have a roof over their head. There's no heat on. And in the middle of winter, they're freezing cold. They've got their scars tied around their neck. They've got a heavy coat on and they're following their team. And they don't care what is happening in the rest of the planet. They're there. Is Jesus central? My friends, if Jesus is central, it makes a huge difference in our whole approach to every part of life. So how do you know a Christian in the neighborhood? You watch them from Sabbath to Sabbath. You talk to them, you listen to them, you get their opinions and views, and very quickly, you will see Jesus is central. 
because that's what John is telling you. That's what John is saying here. Stop asking me. I told you, Jesus is central. You know that wonderful moment in John's life. His disciples came to John and they said, you know, John, people are leaving. But that rabbi whom you baptized, and they're leaving you, John, for him. John didn't say, well, better change the message. Did he? John didn't say, well, we've got to change things here. What does John say? You know what John said. They came on to John and said, And Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizer, and all men come to him. John answered and said, That's a tragedy. We've got to have a meeting about this and get this sorted out. No, John says, a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from above, from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He said, that's what excites me, he says. That's what energizes my life. You've heard the voice of Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. There is John. I don't care about myself. I'm not bothered about what's happening in relation to my popularity. Because I want Jesus exalted. It's the whole point of my existence, he says to these disciples. And that is true humility, isn't it? His sheer delight in the exaltation of Jesus. He's just absolutely thrilled that Jesus Christ is central, exalted, magnified. And if he is overlooked for Jesus, fantastic, John would say. If people are looking at Jesus and not John, oh, his mission is fulfilled. It's what it's all about, isn't it? Is that how you feel? You're listening to John this evening. John is telling you. Do you say, I agree with John? Do you really agree with John? If Jesus is known and you remain unknown, is that okay with you? Are you content with that? My friends, John says he's content. In fact, not only content, it's a necessity, he says. He must increase. I must decrease. I must get lower and lower and lower in order that Christ is lifted up, he says. Because he is central. 
You know, one of our worst faults, we have many faults, but one of our worst faults is following celebrity preachers. You know, some celebrity comes nearby and people say, oh, we must, we, mu we must go there and hear that person. That's a bad fault people have. They must go online and download the sermons of that celebrity. Then they'll talk about that celebrity sermon. Well, I'm not against listening to sermons. Far from it. But if the professing Christian talks more about their favorite, their celebrity preacher, they have a problem. What about Jesus? What about him? John exalted Jesus, never himself. He never exalted himself, even when the temptation was there. When they said to him, John, tell us about yourself. There was his grand moment to seize it. And he fluffs it, doesn't he? He says, I'm not Jesus, but let me tell you about Jesus. What are you doing, Tom? Why are you doing this? Oh, I'm doing it because of Jesus. Because it's all about him. This is how the Christian thinks, you know, as they arrange their life, it's for Jesus. Isn't that what we say when people get married, when a couple get married? We remind them that marriage is about Jesus about the Savior loving the church and the duties and responsibilities of the husband to the wife and the wife to her husband. It's about Jesus. And then people say the trouble in their marriages and problems in their marriage. And we go back and say, well, do you remember that day you stood before the Lord and the congregation? You took these vows. What happened there? All of us are getting older. You remember when you were five, skipping around, never imagining you're going to be 75. We're all getting older. Sometimes we get crabbed, awkward and thran. And we tell people we're Christians, you know, sitting there and whinging at some nurse, doing her best. She leaves and says, that character in there says they're Christian. You want to hear them? What has happened to us? Where is Jesus? Thomas Boston wrote a book, The Crook and the Lot. I'm sure many of you have read it from cover to cover. It's not a big book. Here's a man in his life who has enormous problems. And the book is the fruit of it. That in every lot, the Lord puts a crook. So it's called The Crook and the Lot from Scripture. He looked to Jesus and all his troubles and all his trials. I say to younger ones, you know, as you're planning your career, where does Jesus fit in? What's his place? Oh, I don't mean just making sure you're 
taking the pew on the Lord's Day, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Some of you might go to university. Where is Jesus in that? What happens sometimes? People leave home, they go to university, and they get in a crowd. The crowd doesn't go to church, and then they stop going. But when they come back home, oh, they go to church. Where is Jesus? Is he not in the center anymore? What does John think? John says, he's always in the center. Come what may. What happens when a sinner is converted? For those of you who are converted, you know what I'm going to say. Before you were converted, no matter how religious you were and good you were, the thing that made the difference is Jesus is now in the center. That's what made the difference. Or maybe a lot of things never changed in your life because of your contacts and background and upbringing. But you know in your heart, Jesus made the difference. Is he central? Was he central? Is he still in the center? The sinner leaves all to follow Jesus. They speak of him. They follow him. They obey him. Here is Rutherford. Since Christ looked upon me, my heart is not my own. He has run away to heaven with it. That's the difference. Jesus has taken my heart to heaven. I'm already in heaven before I get there. Jesus is central. But then thirdly, the gospel of Jesus, 29 to 37. Verse 29, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, this is where you need your Old Testament. Far too many people think they don't need the Old Testament. Well, here is John. He doesn't have the New Testament. He has the Old Testament. Do you understand, John? As he preaches about Jesus, you must have your Old Testament. The whole background to this can be summarized this way, and I look at the clock and I see time is motoring on, so I'll summarize it as quickly as I can. The Lamb prophesied in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. You know that history of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's offering Isaac up to God, and the Lord wonderfully comes and says, stop. Here's the substitute. What's the message? Isaac lives because the substitute died in his place. Isn't that what we say as Christians? I live because Jesus died in my place. That's the gospel, isn't it? You have the lamb typified 
you know, the Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus, our Passover, sacrificed for us. You have the lamb personified in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He has brought us a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is done, so he openeth not his mouth. And now you have the lamb identified, John 1, 29. He sees Jesus. He says, there's the lamb. There's the lamb personified in the person of the Son of God who has come into this world. He's the lamb. He's the one. But you know, it doesn't end there. Because in Revelation 5, you have the lamb magnified. What does Revelation 5 say? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's the gospel. Why is it all so important? Why did John feel it so necessary to highlight this particular truth? Well, it's all recorded for you. You've read it, I'm sure, many times. Leviticus 1. The whole chapter, I'll read two verses. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a meal without blemish. Well, it has to be a spotless sacrifice. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. He shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That little ceremony. Is so very, very important. The worshiper, he doesn't just merely set his hand on the head of the sacrifice. He presses down on it, that hand-leaning moment. And what is the worshiper saying? He is saying, I live. Because this substitute dies. The blood is shed in my place. The lamb has taken my place. My sins have killed this lamb, this substitute. I live because this has happened. Christianity, whether we like it or not in our modern age, is what we carefully call a bloody religion. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sins. There is no life but on the other side of the cross. That's what we're saying. The lamb slain that takes away our sins because Jesus, the substitute, dies I now live. Peter puts it so well in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live. To live unto righteousness by whose stripes 
you were healed. That's that hand-leaning moment, isn't it? I should die. I should pay for my sins. But the substitute dies in my place. I live because of him. That's the heart of the gospel. This is what John is preaching. I say to you, friends, do you know these things? Are you resting yourself upon Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the substitute, the Savior of sinners? Well, I'll finish with a couple of points of application. And I ask you, first of all, who are you following tonight? Who are you following? Who were you following yesterday and today? Who will you follow tomorrow? Who are you following? That's where verses 35 to 7 matter. John stood, two of his disciples, looking upon Jesus as he walked. He always sees Jesus. His eyes are full of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Two more have left John for Jesus. Who are you following? Young people, John says to you, forsake all for Jesus. Everything. Leave it all for him. Older people, who have you been following? You've lived decades. Are you known as a follower of Jesus? Are you following him? Pensioners, have you been following Jesus year after year? Following him right to your last breath? You can't go home. Unless you're able to say, yes, I follow Jesus. And secondly and finally, I said, what is it that every person needs? What does every sinner need? It's Jesus. But maybe some of you have made a profession of faith years ago. Over time, you become cold and crusty and hard. Skeptical, cynical maybe. But here is John. John comes alongside you and he says, you need to see Jesus afresh. You need to hear of him again. To hear how glorious he is. How grand and magnificent Jesus is. How central in heaven he is magnified by angels. All the saints who have departed. What about you?
You need to come afresh to Jesus. Cast off all that critical, cynical, crusty self. Take your eyes of others. Forget about others. And to see Jesus for himself, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And one glimpse of him is enough to banish everything around you and to start following him afresh. May the Lord bless these words to you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, we do bless thee for thy word. Bless thee for this passage of Scripture that sets before us that simple ministry of John. My John loved Jesus, preached of Jesus, pointed to Jesus. And surely those words resonate with us. May every single one of us in this gathering go home with Jesus. Resolve to lift up Jesus, to serve him, to follow him, to obey him, and to seek in every way to please him, to labor at it, to sacrifice gladly, willingly, joyfully, all for Jesus. Hear our prayer for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.